0: Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, hey, welcome to uh, week two of the campaign we started last week called For the One. And I've I've already gotten some incredible feedback about this campaign. I think it's going to be absolutely amazing for our church. Uh, If you did not catch last week's service, please just go ahead and hit pause. For a moment. And I did it for you in case you didn't do it yourself. And go back and watch last week's because it really will help frame in what we're going to be talking about today. I think if you listen to today without last week, it's going to feel a bit disjointed. But once you understand the heart and the vision and the impetus behind this campaign we're jumping into, it really will frame in what we're going to talk about today. Because for the next three weeks and starting last week, we're talking about this this heart of God, this heart that he wants to give us to begin to chase after all of those who are not in his house right now. I mentioned last week that there's kind of a, a really depressing statistic in our nation. It says that 35 to 40, uh, 40% of those who called upon the name of Jesus, they were butts in chairs every single Sunday morning at church, hanging out with God, doing their best to serve him. Uh, according to the stats, they have completely disappeared. They're no longer tuning into church. They're no longer engaging in their faith. They're no longer reading their word. As a result of the last five months of chaos and trauma and all that we've faced, they have just tapped out on Jesus and said, I'm going to go back into my my old way of life. And as much as I'd love to tell you that our church is not, uh, you know, not, not a part of that statistic, I would be lying to you. I know that there are so many in our community or used to be in our community that are not a part of what's happening right now. And there is nothing that pains my heart more than to know people who used to sit in this auditorium every single Sunday, and I knew their story. I knew how God had set them free from drugs, and I I knew how he had rewired their thinking and how they had new hope and new identity in him, and to see those fall back into their old ways of life is just, it, it wrecks me as a pastor. But even though it hurts my heart, I know this, I know that it hurts God's heart far more, that he longs for those people to be back in his house And so we've entered into this campaign not to do something to, you know, bolster attendance at the church and make us feel like, okay, everybody's back on the team. we got a big church again. Really because it's the heart of God to see these people back a part of the family. And we called it For the One because that phrase, that three-word phrase, comes from a collection of parables in Luke chapter 15 that we started studying last week and we're going to continue studying today and beyond. A story of a lost sheep a lost coin, and a lost son. And these beautiful stories that Jesus tells that really articulate his heart for those that are lost, his heart for those that need to be in the house. And I said last week that we were going to spend two weeks in that first parable on the sheep. And I will live up to my, my promise today. We're going to look at the parable of the lost sheep again. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Luke chapter 15 as we get into the word today. Or uh, These scriptures will pop up on your screen. But actually, you know, before we go to the word, let's, let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Uh, would you place your hand on your heart as we, as we get in today? Jesus, we ask over these next couple of moments that you would give us your heart. I, I know that Scripture says that you have the ability to take a heart of stone and to turn it into a heart of flesh, to soften our hearts, to break our hearts for what breaks yours. And Lord, as we get into this today, we begin to talk about about chasing down some people that need to be in the house, about seeking them and bringing them back into the fold. Would you just bring some names, some faces Uh, Give us the heart of God for those that have found themselves wandering and distant in this season, and show us what to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them a story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go out and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he'll call together all of his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away." Now, I reminded all of us last week that the purpose for every parable is to provoke a question. Uh, that Every time Jesus tells a story, in fact, he always told stories and used parables in his teaching, the purpose of that is for us to ask a very simple question, who am I in this story? Jesus knew that it was hard to receive the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You can't handle the truth. And, and so he, he told these stories so that he could kind of get past that wall where people are like, I'm not ready to receive this. And he could kind of get them to see themselves in the midst of what he was talking about. And so we must ask as we approach these parables, who am I in the story? Uh, My sister was watching the the sermon last week with her kids, and I have a a young nephew. How old is Kai? Two years old, three years old, something like that, somewhere around there. Kai, I know how old you are, and I love you because you're part of my family. Uh, But she said to me, uh, when I asked that question, like, who am I in the story? He laughed at the screen. He's like, you're Uncle Tim. And I'm like, yes, I am Uncle Tim, but not in this story. I am not Uncle Tim. Uh, The story, as we saw last week, paints a picture of a sheep that has wandered off and the the answer to that question, who am I in the story last week was, I am that wandering sheep. I am the one that needed this relentless shepherd to chase me down when I didn't know how to get back to God. When I didn't know how to to live right, how to serve him, he chased me down in the middle of my sin, in the middle of my wilderness. In fact, I'm re-preaching right now what I told you to go back and listen to a moment ago, but there's no mountain he won't climb up. There's no shadow he won't light up. He's going to do whatever it takes to get to his lost sheep. That's 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 what we saw last week. Now, today, I'd like to look at this parable from a slightly different angle, a different vantage point. Today, I want us to consider that perhaps we're not just the lost sheep, but we could also be the seeking shepherd. Now, I know that there's probably some Bible-smart theological people watching right now. Bob, I know that you're watching right now, and you're like, actually, Tim, that is incorrect. Only Jesus is the seeking shepherd. And yes, I understand that theologically he is the shepherd, but, but follow me for a moment with this logic, because I don't think it's safe to just develop a one-sided theology from parables. In fact, we're not allowed to do that according to the laws of hermeneutics. We're supposed to use parables as a means to incite something in us, to look at the scriptures from a number of different ways. So Luke, the, the, the writer we're studying, was not the only one to record this story or this parable of a lost sheep. There was another one of the gospel writers that recorded this parable, and he includes an introductory sentence, a guy by the name of Matthew, who was a, a rogue, a wandering sheep, a tax collector, but he includes this introductory sentence to this parable that I think is, is rather important. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 11. It says, the Son of Man came to seek... And to save those who are lost. Then he goes on with the parable. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? So Matthew recalls when Jesus tells this story, he opens it up with this statement. The son of man, i.e. Jesus, me, not me, but anyway, you know what I mean. I came to seek and save that which was lost. Now that is a massively important sentence. And the reason that sentence is so important is because it synoptically tells us why Jesus is on the planet. This is his mission statement. If you want to capture the entirety of his ministry into one sentence, here's it, right here. He came to seek and save those who were lost. He said, this is why the Father has sent me. He sent me to the planet, to planet Earth, to seek and save those who are lost. Like, well, great, Tim, what does that have to do with me being the seeking shepherd? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because if Jesus said that, consider the other words of Jesus here in the book of John, chapter 20. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You you, you mopping up what I'm spilling? You picking up what I'm putting down? See, Jesus said, the Father sent me to the planet so that I could seek and save those who are lost. And then Jesus turns right around and he looks at his disciples and he said, this is why the Father sent me, but guess what? The same way he sent me, I am now sending you. So if the Father sent me to seek and to rescue those who find themselves out wandering in the wilderness and don't know how to get back to God, I am now sending you to do the very thing that I did. Yes, you were that wandering sheep for a season. Yes, you were out there and you were far off and I came and I rescued you and I brought you back into the fold. But now that you've been rescued, you don't just sit back and enjoy being a rescued sheep as a part of the 99. You go back out there and I am sending you to bring some other sheep into my house. That's what I'm calling you to do. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Let me say it like this. If seeking and saving is what Jesus does, then sending us is how he does it. God always sends people. He always sends someone on his behalf. We are the method to his mission, if you will. Anytime somebody wanders off in the Bible, God sends someone to bring them back in. When Gomer wandered off, he sent Hosea. When Israel wandered off, he sent the prophets. When David wandered off, he sent Nathan. When Peter wandered off, Jesus sent the disciples. When Paul wandered off, he sent Barnabas. Time and time again in scripture, we see this pattern. If somebody is out there wandering away from God, he provokes the heart of somebody else to go out and chase them down. So if there are 35 to 40% of the people in this house that are wandering, guess what God's doing right now? He is stirring up the hearts of some shepherds that are willing to leave the 99, leave the comfort of their salvation and the comfort of where they're sitting back and enjoying being saved and saying God is provoking me with his heart to go out and chase down some people that need to be a part of the flock again. He always uses people. And this is what, uh, I love this quote from the theologian N.T. Wright. He says, the real challenge of these parables for today's church is what would we have to do in the visible public world if we were to make people ask the questions to which stories like this one are the answer? What might today's Christians do that would make people ask, what are you, why are you going to such lengths and give us the chance to tell stories about finding something that was lost? What must the church do for others to ask, why are you going to such lengths to see people saved? Well, I would like to answer NT's question today, if I could. I would like to spend the remainder of our time responding to this theologian's inquiry. Because last week we talked about this this thought. What would Jesus do? What lengths would Jesus go to to bring a lost sheep home? Well, today I want to flip that. What lengths would Jesus ask us to go to to chase down some people? And just as we did last week, I'm going to give you three simple thoughts. And these thoughts might sound oddly familiar considering last week's sermon. All right? Number one. Since Jesus seeks, so we seek. He seeks, so we seek. Luke 15.3 it says, if a man had a hundred sheep and one of them got lost, what would he do? will he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Once we begin to look at this story from a slightly different angle, we, we begin to see a different implication of this text. It, it begins to bear some new weight on us. Last week we talked about the fact that for a shepherd to leave 99 perfectly good, totally healthy sheep out there in the wilderness and to chase down one other sheep... It seems irresponsible. It seems reckless. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, if the shepherd left those 99 out there, what if the 99 died while he was chasing down the one? What if they decided to wander off and get lost? I mean, would it still be a successful rescue mission if he he found the one but lost the 99 in the process? There is some massive risk and leaving the 99 to go chase down the one. And yet Jesus says, when you were the one, I was willing to embrace the risk. When you were far off, I was willing to leave heaven. I was willing to embrace the rejection of earth. I was willing to do whatever it took to chase you down and find you. And since I was willing to take that risk, now I'm asking you, will you take some risk to chase down some people? So that provokes the question, What kind of risk are we talking about here, Jesus? What are you asking of me? Well, Jesus always used stories. His parables were always consistent with the understanding and the hearing of his audiences. They knew what it was like to be a shepherd. That was very common practice in their day. And so when Jesus begins to talk about a shepherd leaving 99 sheep, everybody in the audience listening that day would have had the ability to wrap their head around this idea. And they would have understood that to a shepherd, sheep are everything. This is not just some, like, hobby or some pastime, like, oh, I like, you know, shepherding sheep in, in my off-season, and, you know, and then, I, and then I go back to the restaurant. Like, this is, this is what, they, this is the whole entirety of their life. For a shepherd, sheep are their income. They are their food, sad to say. It's their clothing. They get the, the wool, and they make their clothing out of it. It's their retirement It's their stability, their safety, their security for the future. It is their entire livelihood. So to leave the majority of your livelihood to go chase down one rogue sheep, that's a a pretty serious risk. It could be incredibly reckless. But it also says something else, doesn't it? Not only could it be incredibly reckless, but in order to leave your livelihood to go chase down one rogue sheep, you also have to be incredibly selfless. See, only a shepherd who is secondarily concerned about himself would be willing to leave his livelihood and his security and his stability to go chase down a single sheep. So just as much as this is an invitation to go uh, sheep chasing... It is also an invitation to live an incredibly selfless life. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The greatest enemy of sheep seeking is self-seeking. It's really hard to go out there and find some sheep when you're too busy finding yourself. It's really hard to me say it like this. Sheep care When you're obsessed with self-care. How many Parks and Rec fans do we have in the room? Parks and Rec people? Parks and Rec people? How many Parks and Rec? Come on, put it in the chat. Who are your favorite characters? Tell them them in the chat. A couple of Parks and Rec characters for you. Donna Meagle, Tom Haverford. They have this self-proclaimed holiday that they celebrate every single day, every single year, called... Treat yourself day. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Treat yourself day. And on treat yourself day, I love that I get to say it like that. I just feel, I feel a little ghetto right now. It's good. Treat yourself. Treat yourself day. You, you go out and you go shopping at these really extravagant places and you get manicures and pedicures and you know, you, you get massages and, and you eat this really expensive food. You just do whatever you want to do. Tom says it like this. He said, the treat yourself day is the one day a year where I allow myself to think about myself and nobody else. That's the treat Self day. Now, that's, that's cute, okay? It's cute for a day. It's, it's probably good for a week or two, dare I say recommended, you know? We should all have a certain level of self, self-care and go out and take the vacation and, you know, make sure that you're healthy and you're whole and you're physically, spiritually, emotionally, all of that. In fact, we're going to do a series on it in our small groups in just a couple of weeks where we start talking about our emotional and our spiritual health. It's absolutely imperative. We must be cared for in that regard. But treat yourself gets a little bit weird when it's a month long or Or a quarter. Or a year. Or self-care just becomes your life. And all you're doing is working on yourself. Suddenly, you don't really have a whole lot of time to seek after some sheep. Because your schedule is so full of making yourself better. And I know a whole lot of people that are wrapped up in this rat race of self-care, thinking that the highest achievement of their life is to become the best version of themselves. But let me remind every single one of us today, yes, does Jesus want you free? Does he want you whole? Does he want you healthy? Does he want you physically, emotionally, spiritually taken care of? Absolutely. But the highest goal of Christianity is not to become the best version of yourself. The highest goal of Christianity is not to figure out if you can sin a little bit less today than you did yesterday. It is not about sinning less. It is about seeking more. You were saved to seek. You were made a disciple so that you can go make some disciples. Jesus said before he left this planet, you want to know what this is all about? Go out and make some disciples. Tell people about me. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey my ways. That is the entirety of what this life is about. And if we get so wrapped up in this rat race of self-betterment, we're going to miss the high call for our lives. We're going to miss what Jesus put us on this planet for, to seek some people out and to bring them into the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. And let me say this, you cannot seek what Jesus is seeking without him taking care of your needs. Matthew chapter 6 says it like this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else you need is going to be added to you. Oh, I just feel hopeless right now. I need hope. Go seek some sheep and God will give you some hope. Oh, I just need some provision right now. I need the job. Go seek some sheep. God's going to take care of all your needs. Oh, I I just feel heartbroken and I feel like I just, the weight of everything's on my, go seek some sheep and God will give you the freedom and he'll give you the direction and he'll give you the clarity and he will give you everything you need if you obsess over seeking what he's seeking. People. He seeks and so we seek. Very simple. But he doesn't just seek. As the story tells us, when he finds the sheep, he doesn't leave it there. He saves it. So secondarily, I can't say "saved." <laughs> he rescues, so we rescue. I can't say "save" because we can't save, right? right? Like the only Jesus can save. But in, in, wrapped up in this word in the Greek is this idea of, of rescue, rescuing somebody from danger. So while I can't save somebody, I can help rescue somebody from some danger. Right. And here's what it looks like. Luke 15:5. And when he, the shepherd, has found it, the sheep, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Y'all remember the unicorn from last week? He will, he will carry it home on his shoulders. Now, last week, I said it's important that we take note of what was not said in this text in addition to what was said. We, we need to look at what the shepherd did not say because sometimes what was not said is equally as important as what was said. And if you recall, we stated clearly that the shepherd did not look at the sheep And reprimand the sheep. He did not discipline the sheep. He didn't say, how dare you? You're out here on your own. You're never allowed back. Or begrudgingly put the sheep on his shoulders and carry him back and give him a guilt trip. That's not what the shepherd did. It said that the shepherd joyfully, he was so excited about the fact that he finally found this lost sheep. He picked it up off the ground knowing that it could not carry itself. And he put the sheep over his shoulders and he began to carry that sheep home. Religion says walk back, but grace says, I will carry you. It says, I will carry you home. Yes, clap. However, <laughs> do you hate it when I do that? Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So if Jesus was willing to carry some sheep, if Jesus was willing to bear the weight and the burden on his shoulders, of some lost sheep, guess what? You don't get to brush your shoulders off. That's two Jay-Z references two weeks in a row. I should probably get saved. Your, Your spiritual shoulders were actually fashioned to carry the weight of some sheep. You were made for this. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Carry one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens, in one translation. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. <laughs> Oh, I love the Bible sometimes. Amen. I could never say that from the stage. Hey, guys, open up your Bibles. We're going to start a new sermon series called You Are Not That Important Today. <laughs> Come on, turn to your neighbor and tell them. No, like, like we just—that's you just can't do that kind of stuff. But Paul says it here. He's like, hey, if you think that you're too busy, if you think you got too much going on to help somebody, if you think that your life is so stacked and your world is so important that you can't take care of anybody else, you are fooling yourself. You are lying to yourself. You are not really that important. Let that sink in for just a moment. Oh, I just got so much going on. I can't do this. I can't serve. I can't help. Hey, you know what? That stuff's not really that important in comparison to what Jesus has called us to do. We've been called to bear one another's burdens. So let's, let's talk about this practically. What does it look like to bear one another's burdens? Again, write this down if you're taking notes. Burden-bearing is shared weight, not dead weight. Burden bearing is shared weight, not dead weight. Let me borrow a couple people. Uh, Dom, let me get you real quick. Anthony, can I have you come up here real quick? Give it up for these two guys as they come to the stage. Come on, come on, come on. By the way, this guy right here uh, just got married a couple of days ago. Hey, he looks really relaxed, that's why. Uh, This guy right here is not married, but he's very attractive. So call this options for some of you out there, okay. So burden-bearing is shared weight, not dead weight. Um, Don, will you just lay on the ground real quick and become dead, dead weight for all of us? you do that? All right. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> there he is. Dead, yeah, go ahead and take a little nap. That'll be great. Now, often I think when we read scriptures like this, or we consider like, you know, the, the burdensome nature of other people's lives. We think that bearing someone else's burdens means like carrying them completely. So Anthony, if you could, for just a moment, would you pick Dom up and put him on your shoulders? I think that would be great. (laughs) I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Now, I don't, (laughs) and there you go. You can't do that for too long, right? Like, when you think about the, 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 the nature of some people's lives, it's like, is marriage, and not your marriage, you just got married, but, you know, their marriage is on the rocks, and, you know, their finances are destroyed, and they're always calling me at 3 o'clock in the morning complaining about stuff. Like, what if he asks me for money? I don't want to give him money. And, you know, like, we think that that's what it means to carry someone else's burdens. Like, we have to bear all the weight of that individual's problems. Sorry that I'm using you as that example. But I can't do that. I can't carry him. I can't even get him on my shoulders. How long am I? Like, there's no way. It seems crippling. It seems impossible. But this is not what Paul's talking about. Paul is not talking about dead weight that you have to carry. He's talking about sharing the weight. So go ahead and stand to your feet real quick, Dom. This is, this is an accurate biblical picture. Come into the light so that you guys aren't all there in the shadows. This is an accurate biblical picture of what bearing one another's burdens looks like. It means walking arm in arm with another person. And when Dom is going through something difficult in his life, he can begin to lean on his friend here. He can displace some of his weight onto somebody who's a little bit stronger in this season. And even though it's heavy for him, there's someone else that's willing to carry him a little bit during that chapter. If you want the theological term for it, I think we can turn to the prophet uh, Phil or Paul or whatever his name was when he's saying, lean on me when you're not strong and i'll be your friend come on everybody sing it out and i'll help you carry on lean on me it won't be long until you're gonna need someone to lean on as well sorry they still wanted to sing a little bit in here yeah i carry some people i let some people lean on me in this season because there's gonna come a time in my life where I'm gonna need to lean on some people as well. It's called the spiritual law of reciprocity. When you become what somebody else needs, It's amazing how God begins to provide for you what you need in those seasons. There's a whole lot of people just sitting around waiting for someone else to carry their burdens. Well, when we allow other people in our life to carry our burdens and we kind of carry a little bit of theirs, suddenly God begins to add other people to our life so that when we're weak, now all of a sudden there's a bunch of us who are walking shoulder and shoulder and we can carry one another's burdens. This is what life is supposed to look like as a believer. Not isolated out there figuring it out on your own to carry one another through some difficult chapters. Give it up for these guys. You guys can take your seat. He seeks, so we seek. He rescues, so we rescue. And then you all know the third one. You heard it last week. He, (laughs) one person knew it. Okay, great job, guys. He celebrates. Thank you, Michelle, the person who's looked at the video about a thousand times he celebrates. <laughs> you can't, you, you can't edit this stuff. All right. This is what happens. He celebrates. So we celebrate. I'm going to invite the band with this as we conclude, but Luke chapter 15, verse six. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Last week, we talked about the fact that this is a slightly ridiculous celebration considering what's been found. You have 99 perfectly good sheep that were doing just fine, and then the whole family, all the friends, all the neighbors are brought together together to celebrate this one seemingly insignificant sheep that the shepherd went out there and found. But as I stated last week, I think the reason that Jesus paints this ridiculous celebration, this elaborate celebration is because every sheep that is lost needs to know that it's gonna be celebrated when it comes back home. Not just tolerated, not told to, you know, get back on the wagon and work your way up to a place at the table and then eventually we might let you, but just to know, hey, when you come back home, it doesn't matter how far you've been, how, how much sin you've indulged in, how, how wrecked your life is, we're gonna wrap our arms around you and we're gonna celebrate. We're gonna welcome you back into the fold. But maybe the sheep isn't the only one that needs to know that they will be celebrated. Maybe the sheep isn't the only one that needs to see this picture of an elaborate seemingly ridiculous celebration considering what has just taken place. Maybe even a seeking shepherd needs to see how heaven responds. Because when a seeking shepherd sees how much of a party heaven throws when one sinner comes home, he will be compelled, she will be compelled and motivated and inspired to be all about what heaven celebrates. Heaven's celebration can compel us. Permit me a moment of perhaps a, a little too much uh, transparency. Are we okay with that tonight? Today, excuse me, tonight, today. We're recording tonight. Dang it, I ruined it. Um, when Robin and I moved to the city years ago to plant this church, uh, we didn't move to San Francisco because there was a whole lot of great stuff to do in the city and a lot of activities and a lot of places to check out, although there is. Uh, we didn't move here because the culinary scene is far superior to the goat pasture that we grew up in, although it is. (laughs) We moved here because there's a whole lot of lost sheep in this city. We moved here because according to the stats, 99% of San Francisco and the greater Bay area doesn't know Jesus. 99% have not yet called upon his name. They wouldn't consider themselves believers and they are on their way to an eternity apart from him. And we knew, one day, we were gonna stand before Jesus, we were gonna give an account for our life, and I did not feel comfortable having a conversation with Jesus telling him, I knew about that, but I did nothing about it. So we moved here to seek some lost sheep, and our prayer every single day of every single week since we've been here is, God, would you send people? Would you send the flock? Would you, would you bring those who are not just needing to be a part of the house, but are willing to go out and to get those that are far off and bring them into the house? Could we see every single week people getting saved here? And he has answered that prayer time and time again. As we sit here today, 455 people have made a decision to follow Jesus in the Father's house since we started just under two years ago. Yeah, that's worth celebrating. But I remember a week before our one year anniversary, I was looking at our church metrics and I noticed that we had 299 people who had said yes to Jesus. And as we approached that one-year celebration, I was so excited because I'm like, we're gonna blow this 300 out of the water. It's gonna be amazing. I was so confident. So I came to church that morning when we used to have church in the morning here. And our dream team gathered in the lobby together and we were huddling and we we're getting ready for the day. And we were, we were stirring them up like, guys, 299 people have said yes to Jesus. Yeah, hey, today's our last day in the first year and we're going to blow 300 out of the- How many do you think are going to get saved? How many do you think are going to... Probably not something you should do, but anyway, you know, what, what do you guys think? And everyone was excited. They're like, this is going to be amazing. So we do church. Worship happens. The sermon is preached. The conclusion of the sermon did the same thing that I do every single week. Made it an opportunity for those who are far from God to come to Him. People prayed the prayer and repeated after me. And then I said, hey, when we leave this room, take that card if you just made that decision, fill it out, bring it back to our connect table. We're gonna give you a Bible. We're gonna help you take your next steps talk to you about baptism. We're gonna do everything we need to do to get you started strong on this journey. And so we concluded the service. We went out on the porch, we ate tacos and, and cupcakes and cake, and we celebrated all that God had done in the first year. And immediately after we concluded, I, I beelined over to the Connect table, I'm like, guys, how many, how many did we get today? How many people said yes to Jesus? And I just knew in my head it was just gonna be this astronomical number. And I'll never forget, I looked at this, this woman who's working at our Connect table, and she's like, Pastor, we got the one. There's 300 people that God saved in our church in the first year. And I did what every pastor would do. I smiled and I'm like, that is amazing. Come on, thank you, Jesus. But in the back of my head and somewhere there in my heart, (laughs) I was like, ah, just one, just just one person. And it wasn't because like I needed validation for my preaching, like, you know, I don't gauge the quality of what's been said from a stage based on the number of people that said yes to Jesus, although it helps, but it's not what it was. It, It was because I just, I felt in my spirit that there were so many people that were gonna say yes to Jesus. So we packed up church and I, I ran to my car and sat down in the front seat. And no sooner as I sat down, than I got this, this picture of heaven. Suddenly I, I sat down and I began to see angels celebrating and the elders getting all excited and hooting and hollering. And people were dancing and high-fiving. And, and there was this massive celebration in heaven because one person had said yes to Jesus. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me in that moment, why are you not celebrating what I'm celebrating? Why are you mourning the one when you should be celebrating the one? And I made a decision right there. I said, I will always be about this Jesus. I don't care if it's one or 1,000 or one or 1 million, I will give my life for one person. I will do whatever it takes to cause heaven to celebrate, for angels to do backflips and high-five and streamers. If everything I give my life to is so that one person can make their way to heaven, then it is worth it because that is what you celebrate. And since that's what you celebrate, that is what I am going to celebrate on this side of eternity. I think there's so many things that we are celebrating that heaven is not celebrating. I'm, I'm grateful that you got that promotion. I'm grateful that the girl finally said yes to your invitation for a date. Those are all great things to celebrate on this side of heaven. But if you wanna get in on what heaven is celebrating today, then let's begin to seek out some sheep. Let's begin to rescue those that are far off. And let's begin to celebrate when Jesus brings them back home because that is what heaven is all about today. May we be obsessed with what heaven is obsessed with. Let me make this very practical because have shared a lot. There's a big burden with some of this. I know how people's brains work and some of you over the last couple of minutes as we've been looking through these three thoughts, you're like, okay, I got 12 people in my brain right now and all 12 of these people are far off and so I need, that's a lot, it's a lot of work and I got to schedule it when I'm going to call, when I'm going to text, when I'm going to do this and ah, it's already overwhelming you. And then there's others who you're so underneath it right now that you're like, I got my own problems, I got my own stuff, I don't have any capacity to chase somebody else down so so let me give you a little bit of advice this comes from pastor Andy Stanley here's what he says just do for the one what you wish you could do for everyone yeah you may not be able to seek and try to rescue piles and piles of people but you could do it for one you may not be able to buy lunch for all of San Francisco but maybe you could buy lunch for one person maybe you don't have the ability to bear burdens of dozens of people but you can come alongside one person and put your arm around them and say, hey, I will walk with you right now. I'll do whatever it takes to see you get through this season. Do for the one what you wish you could do for everyone. I commission you this week. Jesus commissions you this week. Find one person that needs to be sought out, that needs to be rescued, and that needs to be celebrated. And I guarantee you the grace of God, the anointing of God, the pleasure and the joy of God will be on your life as you begin to seek that which Jesus is seeking. Amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.